0: We're going to open our Bibles together this morning to the end of Mark's Gospel. We're skipping over some things, but for the sake of Mother's Day, taking a look at one woman in particular whose life is a powerful testimony to the power and love of Jesus Christ. Uh, He is that Savior who has loved uh, the people, the nations of the earth, in an extraordinary fashion. So before we open that word together, I want to ask you to join me in praying for God's blessing and remembering Steve Gagan and his family. Father, how thankful we are that you are the resurrected Christ, and what a glorious morning it was when your disciples came to the tomb and found it empty. What a glorious day it was as you presented yourself to Mary Magdalene and she saw you and and has borne eyewitness testimony that the Savior lives. Oh, how we thank you that you have conquered our sins, you have conquered death and the grave, and that you have brought us out of bondage and fear who through all of our lives before we met you were subject to that slavery and the fear of death. We are thankful that death did not claim Steve's brother but you have saved him, and though his physical body failed, his spirit lives forever, and he awaits that day of resurrection, uh, as all saints do, when new bodies will be given and the saints will be forever perfect. We ask that you would bring comfort and encouragement to the family in these days, and as those final arrangements have been made and the, the family uh, has has made those plans to, to celebrate his life and to set their hearts on the gospel, we pray that you would cause others, both family and friends who may not know you, to recognize their need of the forgiveness of sins that comes through Christ and the gift of eternal life that is in him. We are thankful that Steve and his family have the assurance that his brother is with Christ. And so we ask that in all of those Uh, services, in the gatherings, the, the remembering of his life, that there would be just a sweet and powerful manifestation of the presence of Christ. We are grateful, Father, that your word gives us hope and it gives us life. And as we open it together today, it is with expectation that you will change us by it and that you will strengthen us through it. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. As your Bibles are open to Mark 15, I want to call your attention to verse 40, and let's read a a portion of this scripture together. And as we do, and then go back through the life of Mary and piece some things together from the gospel accounts, much like we did with Mary of Bethany last week, I want you to be thinking in terms of how much does Jesus love me? How much does he love you? We answer that question, not just by finding a Bible verse that might say, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That would be evidence in and of itself, but there are also personal stories included in the gospel account, and they're written so that people like us might have the full assurance that the truth that Jesus loves us, that God loves us, is personally intended and directed. How much does Jesus love you. In Mark 15, verse 40, we read, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. he granted the corpse to Joseph, and Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that, he had, that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. "'And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, "'Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb?' And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed, and he said to them, "'Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified.' quite a remarkable account. We've just come through that Easter season where we celebrated the the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What I want to do is fill in some of the backstory and then even conclude the message in John 20, where he actually records the very personal interaction of Christ with Mary Magdalene. She was named back in verse 40 as one of those women who had gathered to watch the crucifixion. What a horrific time for them. What a time of sorrow and agony. But verse 41 notes of those women that they followed him and ministered to him from Galilee. It's interesting because if you go back through the gospel accounts, you will find a a similar testimony recorded. It's found in Matthew 27, verses 55 and 56. There were women who had followed Jesus from Galilee, and Mary Magdalene is named specifically in that list. Luke 23, verse 49, records the same truth. Women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. John 19 records that there were a number of women standing near the foot of the cross. Mary Magdalene is named among them. But it is in Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, that that I would direct your attention. You can turn there if you would like because it gives us understanding, a, a little context for why these women would have followed Jesus. So back in Luke eight, verse one, we read this. Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him. And also some women who were healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chuza. Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Mary Magdalene is named in every one of these Gospels and in similar accounts that have been recorded. Remember last week I said there are actually seven Marys in the New Testament. So again, if it's hard to keep them, distinguish one from the other, you're not alone in that effort. I want us to spend some time this morning, though, looking at who Mary was. You know, there are extra biblical writings. We refer to them as the Gnostic Gospels or the Gnostic writings that have put some information out there, and it floats around. I I talked with a friend not too long ago who raised the question if maybe Mary Magdalene had actually been married to Jesus at some point in his life, and certainly there are those who would say, based on some of these writings, it seems she might have been the wife of Jesus. Uh, It's that kind of writing that's given rise to popular books and movies like the Da Vinci Code. Or that she was the possessor of secret knowledge regarding Jesus Christ. And there is a, a Gnostic gospel called the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. But if you go back through both church history and the biblical record, there is nothing mentioned there of this kind of relationship with Jesus or of this kind of special spiritual knowledge that this woman enjoyed uh, and, and was privy to. We actually describe teaching such as this with the term heterodoxy. That means it's teaching of another kind. So there's no biblical warrant for it. Not even the early church fathers would have affirmed this kind of teaching. As a matter of fact, you can go back to some of their writings. And, and they take apart the Gnostic Gospels and, and really set them aside as, as being um, historically inaccurate, if not fictional, uh, altogether. So there's no source anywhere that we would rely upon saying maybe she was or maybe she knew. But let's look at what the Bible says. Because at the end of the day, the Bible is our rule of faith and practice, is it not? And Mary Magdalene is a beloved follower of Jesus. First of all, a resident of Magdala. That's where we get that uh, second part of what we assume is her name, but it's really not. Magdalene refers to the town she's from. It's not a special place per se. Uh, It's just a a little village located on the northwest rim of the Sea of Galilee, not far from Capernaum, where Jesus made his home, just north of Tiberias, which was another significant city in that day. As you begin to dig into the Scriptures, and we already read some of this in Luke's account, Mary is a recipient of great mercy. In that text that we looked at from Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 2, she is referred to as a woman who was healed of evil spirits, specifically from whom seven demons gone out. And to that end, we, say, we would say it was a great mercy. There's nothing in the Gospels that tell us the, the full story of what her life was like prior to this exorcism. We can piece some things together from other accounts that are recorded. And I would I would note, first of all, that deliverance from from demons often included several things of a physical nature, of a social nature, and of a spiritual nature. The common manifestations that are recorded in the New Testament include physical disabilities. Matthew records in chapter 9 an individual who was uh, demonized and could not speak because of that. You go to chapter 12 and find another individual who was blind because of demon possession. Mark records in chapter 9 that there was an individual who was deaf because of demonic presence. Seizures and convulsions. Luke 13 records that a disabling spirit had, had actually created such a physical effect in a woman that she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. 18 years she suffered that physical disability. There are also those who you see Being personally isolated. Uh, Obviously, because of the way they lived and and how they interacted with other people, they were often thrust out of those cities and villages. Mark records the, the sad account of a demoniac who lived among the tombs and who was on the mountains. Luke also records for us of a demoniac who who did not live in a house but also in the graveyard and was driven by that demon into the desert. So often these people were isolated, whether the towns and villages themselves thrust them out or the demons led them into those places of isolation and desolation. But the greatest, the greatest suffering these people endured was of a spiritual nature for they were spiritually enslaved. If you turn over to Mark 5, And you look at verses 4 and 5. There the account is recorded of one who had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. He broke the shackles in pieces as he was under the influence of this demonic spirit. No one had the strength to subdue him, Mark says. And then listen to this. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Those physical cries were not only expression of physical pain, but of great spiritual torment, great spiritual enslavement. He was not his own. He was under the control of a force that he was helpless uh, to expel from his soul. Jesus actually told uh, an account of, of a demonization where for a time the individual was delivered and he says of that spirit it goes and then brings seven other spirits more evil than itself and they enter and dwell there and the last state of that person is worse than the first and while he doesn't name mary specifically you do wonder if because the account of her life is that she was possessed of seven demons and then with what jesus saying the last state of this particular person being far worse than the initial demonization by one spirit, what was her life like? Well, Whatever her particular condition and however those demons manifested their presence and their power, we can be sure that her life prior to Jesus likely included physical disability and suffering of some kind. It certainly included social isolation and spiritual oppression and bondage and slavery. But we happily come to Luke 8, verse 2. And Jesus is the one who is credited with healing her. That is, He was bringing relief to her in every way. She was healed and and restored not only from the physical effects, but of the spiritual, personal presence of those demons. In one other account where He has exorcised demons from an individual, He says to that man, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. That's why I would say that Mary is the recipient of a great mercy because she was greatly afflicted. As a little brief side note, because I, I'm often when, when I speak or, or teach on passages such as these, people would say, well, do you believe that kind of thing goes on today? And certainly... I think anyone whose eyes are open to the spiritual realm and seeking to order their worldview by the word of God would recognize that this type of activity does go on today. And may I caution you to be careful that just because you have not experienced it, don't relegate it to another time or era or even to a third world country. American Christians have somehow developed an idea, many of them, that this is for another time or place. It's just not us. We're more educated in this, so we're not afflicted. And I fully disagree with that. Mostly from the teaching of the Scriptures, because I don't think it points us that direction, but even out of experience in life and ministry through the years. Having said that, though, and I don't want to raise some kind of uh, macabre uh, interest in this, I want to point you to some scriptures that make it very clear to us that, first of all, the Lord appeared, as 1 John 3 says, to destroy the works of the devil. He dealt a severe blow to our adversary. We are taught to wrestle against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places by putting on the whole armor of God. And when you strap on that armor, one thing you do is to unsheathe the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You take up the shield of faith, whereby you quench the fiery darts of the wicked one that come. James tells us in chapter 4, verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Peter writes in his first letter, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. So there are no special incantations or Christian potions or talismans that we would bring to bear to ward off darkness. No, the chief weapon in our warfare is this very word. We believe it, first of all. We obey it and practice it. We pray it out loud. We plead the powerful blood of Jesus Christ, not only for the cleansing of our souls from the guilt of our sin, but as a covering for protection Uh, against this evil one. He hates the work of Christ. He hates the death on the cross. He hates the resurrection doctrine that we would hold to and believe. And so God has called us to wage war, but it is primarily by faith, through the word, through prayer, through obedient living. Back to Mary, the healing of Christ had brought physical relief and certainly brought her into a new relationship with him and likely renewed relationships that were broken by her spiritual darkness and bondage, and and Jesus had given her life. So she loved him. So then we begin to make some observations about Mary. She's not only a resident of Magdalene, a recipient of great mercy, but she is a disciple loved by Jesus. Now, I'm going to tell you that when I was first developing this outline I, I actually wrote in she's a disciple who loves jesus and that would be true but as i continue to review her life story and think about all that had happened what the 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 greater impression even on my own soul that i would want to be on yours is that all of this was actually the result of christ's love for her and that's always the way it, it is in our lives now what were the evidences of christ's love for her Well, one of those things that becomes apparent as you consider the context of her world is that women were not typically brought into the circle of teaching that a rabbi would gather around himself. We would fully expect a rabbi, as Jesus was, to gather male disciples around him, but what's unexpected is that there were women who were also part of that close circle of disciples. Luke 8 again tells us that the 12 were with him and also some women, and Mary Magdalene is one. We have no idea if she had any family relationships uh, that were close and significant. Was she single? Had she ever been married? Was she widowed? Was she divorced? We just don't know, but it seems likely that Mary did not have some of those immediate family responsibilities that, that would have uh, then in turn freed her uh, to follow Jesus, it's obvious that what Jesus did to make room for her as a woman was out of the ordinary, and it's an evidence of His love. I pause for a moment at at a, a reality that appears in Scripture like this, and I'm sure many of you ask, as I've asked before, "Would Jesus have room for me? I'm nothing special." I can't bring something significant to him and offer him in in service or sacrifice. I mean, as a matter of fact, most of us are, are ordinary people living in fairly obscure places, living inconsequential lives. Does Jesus have room for me? Well, as I said at the outset, there are not only truths in Scripture that would indicate, yes, he does. There are stories like this that are intended to give you an answer. Of course he does. He's always had room for those. And isn't this just like him to take a woman that was marginalized, living literally at the edges of society, as most demoniacs were at that particular point, and and healing her, and and not just like returning her to life to, to be able to work a job or to interact with family or friends or go to the local synagogue as a Jewish woman might have on a Sabbath day. He brings her near to himself. You know, I don't know what your present circumstances might be on this particular day, but no matter how dark or even terrifying they might be for you, those circumstances have not pushed you beyond the reach of Jesus. So here she is, a woman who's received great mercy and a woman who has experienced the great love of the Lord Jesus. Now go to John 20, though. In the last few minutes uh, of our study of the the life of this remarkable woman. And again, what makes her remarkable? The mercy and love of Jesus. But look at what John records about that particular moment, that, that morning of resurrection. She's actually the first eyewitness to see the risen Christ. In John 20, verse 1, we read, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And we know from the other accounts that initially she came with some of those other ladies, right? We, we read that earlier. But John's focusing in on Mary. She saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that would be John. He, he never refers to himself in the first person. And said to them, Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary lingers, and apparently is the only one at this particular point but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting there, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Well, isn't it obvious? From her perspective and and from ours, if we didn't know how the story really is about to go, we would say... the one who has loved her and showed mercy to her in ways that no one else had ever, had ever shown her before, is gone. Not just that he died a few days before, but now his body has been carried away, dishonored potentially. I mean, who knows what kind of thoughts had, had come into her heart and into her head at that particular point. Her answer to the angels, though, is a sweet and clear testimony of something. Look at this with me, please. Her answer is, they have taken away my Lord. Do you know, this is one of just two times in John's gospel where this term, Lord, appears in this way. The second will be at the end of this chapter when Thomas comes face to face with the risen Christ and refers to him as my Lord and my God. There's so much that's loaded into this statement. When Mary uses this term to refer to Jesus, she would be accurate and correct in saying, He's my Messiah. He is Jesus who saves us from our sins, but she chooses this particular term. I wonder what kind of questions were rolling through her mind after she watched him die just a couple of days before, probably like us, thinking, how could people kill such a powerful and loving Messiah? I'm sure she wrestled with that thought. Will I ever experience the presence and Mercy of Christ, the way I have over these last months and years. I wonder if she was even concerned that those demons might return in his absence. We don't know exactly what was in her heart, but we see this sweet testimony that her heart is fully submitted to this one as Lord. It's a term that speaks of him in a position of high authority, as as one would a master, even an owner. Her soul that had been owned by darkness for so long, now owned by this merciful, loving Savior. What a sweet testimony it is. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Or or why are you weeping? And she says, they have taken away my Lord. Look at the next verses. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Everybody wants to know, how could you not know it's Jesus? Well, She's been sobbing, crying hard. Maybe it's the tears that have blurred her eyes. It does seem that Jesus' physical manifestation changed some after the resurrection. The text doesn't tell us, so we'll just leave it there. Jesus then says to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Such a a sweet testimony. But then a glorious moment, Jesus said to her, Mary, speaking her name, speaking it as he probably had on many other occasions, but here in this garden near Golgotha's crest, Jesus Christ, who had minutes before risen from the cold slab, hewn out of that Rock, who had shaken off those claws that bound him and prepared him for burial, the seventy-five pounds of spices that the text previously tells us Joseph and Nicodemus had used on on that uh, quick preparing for burial, the folded folded the face cloth, laid it to the side, walked away from death's cold grip. That Christ stands before her and speaks. It takes me back to Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15, where we read that he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, That is, he entered our world as one of us, God of eternity, infinite, eternal, perfect in every way, limits himself to the body of a real man for a time, dies a real death and rises from the grave. Hebrews goes on to say he did this so that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Mary's not the only example of those who have been in lifelong slavery. Some of you would testify that before you met Jesus, you too were a slave of your passions, of your lusts, of things like greed and envy and. And covetousness, you were a slave to your fears, maybe even a slave to the forces of darkness. But here Jesus stands before and speaks her name. And even as he speaks that, that's the answer to the desire of our heart. Mary, you can't take away the body of your Lord because he's risen from the dead never to die again. Mary, whatever grief and sorrow overwhelms you in this particular moment is swallowed up in the glorious reality that Christ is risen. You know, the resurrection is the greatest sign of Christ's power and authority in his life. It's a greater miracle than even her exorcism. It's a greater miracle than her deliverance from seven demons who nearly destroyed her. Jesus speaks her name, and look at how she responds. Verse 17, or verse 16, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, and John thankfully gives non Aramaic speakers like us the translation, it means teacher. But for her, in her context, there, there's great personal affection. It's a, it's a word of affection that just comes from the depths of her heart. She's showing him honor, showing him respect, even speaking of the relationship that they have developed over the last several years as she has followed him. But there's also a gesture of love. John doesn't state it explicitly, but you understand it when you read verse 17. Jesus says to her, do not cling to me. That is, stop, stop holding on to me. It's not that he doesn't want to receive that physical expression of her heart's worship and affection, but rather there's this sense that she's just clinging to him and, and may not ever let him go. And then, of course, he says, I have not yet ascended to the Father. If you've ever been reunited with someone that you love and perhaps even someone that you thought you would not see for a long, long time, if ever again, and you were just compelled to wrap your arms around that person, then you would have some sense of what Mary is experiencing and even doing at this particular moment. So she's the first not only to see the resurrected Christ, she's the first to worship the risen Lord. What a privilege but that brings us to the final, and I would say, perhaps even the most important point, she's the first eyewitness to testify to others of his resurrection. Look again in verse 17. After Jesus says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus commissions her, and he says, go and say. Go and say. And so verse 18 records her obedience to that simple command. She went and announced. And what did she say? It's just a simple, direct statement. I have seen the Lord. And so the great gospel mission begins through a woman. I know that even in our day, women have battled for rights. It's hard for our generation to fathom that there was a time where women could not vote in our country. Praise God, that was overturned and the, and the privilege given. There have been battles all along, women, ladies, haven't there, for, for your rights. Many of them should have been granted to you centuries ago, millennia ago. Well, as, as difficult it has been in this present generation, it was even more difficult in that day and age. And in this context... You, you may have heard, if not, there's a, there's a, a, a classic, it's a f- offensive to us certainly, but a classic Jewish prayer that includes the phrase, Lord, I thank thee that I'm not a woman. Th- that was the common thinking. So it's, it's actually a stunning development here that the Lord not only brings a woman to be the first eyewitness, but it, that he also commissions her really as the first voice, the first public testimony of the resurrection. It's a reminder to us that in God's eyes, just like there are no races, Paul, the apostle Paul writes in one of his New Testament letters that there's neither Jew nor Gentile. And then he says, there's neither male nor female. It's not the obliteration of gender distinction. It's just what the Lord is saying is that there, there's no higher rank given to men or women for that matter, but all are equal. What a privilege, what power Christ has shown and what love he has demonstrated toward her. And I suspect that while she spoke with joy and amazement on that particular day, there were many days following where she would tell the story and say, I've seen the Lord, I have seen the resurrected Lord. We see him by faith in our day. You could journey to Jerusalem, you could journey to Israel, but you would not see the Lord Jesus there on this day. But you can see him by faith. You can see him in the record of the Bible. You can see him as he manifests his love through other people, uh, through his followers specifically. I wonder if you say today with Mary, I have seen the Lord. I've seen him as I've opened the word. I've experienced his presence as I've communed with him in, in prayer. I've known the power of his shepherding care. I've watched him provide for me through life. I have seen the Lord. If that's true of you today, then your testimony is needed now more than ever. As we think through the scriptures here at the end, I want you to be impressed, first of all, that it's Christ's love that transforms us so completely. God is not coming to you saying, you need to love me more. You need to work harder at this Christian life. No, he he gets to commands like that, but what he does first is to say, do you know how much I love you? And Christ's resurrected life The reality of his triumph over sin and death through the cross and and then coming out of the tomb, that became powerful motivation for Mary and the other disciples of that generation. And so I would say in the second place, Christ's resurrection is ultimately the greatest motivator for you and for me. Again, we do it by faith. But don't make the mistake of thinking, well, if if I could see the risen Lord, then I'd be more motivated to share the gospel or live this life that he's called me to. I don't know that you or I really would because we are reading the eyewitness testimony. We are just the the latest generation in a long line of generations who have come face to face with the truth that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God sent into the world. So it brings us back, have you encountered the living Christ? And if so, how has he changed you? What's your story? Your story will be different from mine. Mine is different from Mary's. Mary's was different from Peter's. What darkness dwelling in your soul has Jesus touched? How has he transformed you by his love and power? That's what you need to be communicating with the world around you. It should not matter to us if it's if it's seven demons that would plague a person physically and emotionally and spiritually or if there's some other profound sin that, that has you in its in its death grip that you've been delivered from, the resurrected Christ is the one to whom we testify. Some of you, I just feel very strongly that some of you watching today or even seated here in this place with us may be saying, you know what, I haven't even responded to that first call. And maybe you're just on the front side of this and you've been hearing the voice of Jesus through sermons like this or as you've read the Word, but you really haven't responded in faith to Him saying, I come to you, Jesus, yes. and Day after day, he says, come to me. Confess your sin. Ask my forgiveness. Ask me for the gift of eternal life. Come to me. And to this point, you haven't actually come, but this is the day, so come. The Lord is calling you. But you know, the Lord doesn't call us to come to him and then stop right there. We come, as Mary and many others did, but it's also with a view that we would be changed so that we can turn around and go and tell. And the Lord is calling some of you not just to come to Him again by faith, but to go from the cross and empty tomb to share the good news. To say in your own words, I've seen the Lord. What a story. And we've really only just been given the Notes version, haven't we? I can't wait to hear the full account from Mary herself when we arrive in heaven one day. But for now, this is the powerful word of the Lord and it's enough. For Mary, her story really began before this day, but it just comes to this climactic moment of encountering the risen Christ, and from that she says, I've seen the Lord. Can you say that today? I have seen Jesus. I've heard his voice. And I've opened my heart to his Lordship. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful that from Genesis to Revelation, you have included stories of of not just ordinary people, but even some who lived under extraordinary, uh, difficult circumstances that robbed them of any hope whatsoever. Some whose sin was so, so great that they they thought they could never find peace with God. Some whose physical afflictions were so painful and difficult that they would they despaired of having another ordinary day of health. And some, like Mary, who were under the domination of spiritual forces that were, could not even be fully understood and, and could not be uh, conquered in her own power, and yet you came, Lord Jesus, and you gave her deliverance, and you've given thousands upon thousands of others deliverance of all kinds through the ages. Oh, how we ask that this would be a day of deliverance from sin a day of deliverance from guilt, from fear, and that in place of those life enslaving experiences and and thoughts and trouble, that you would replace it with life in Christ, with the confidence that we can be forgiven for all of our sins, The the confidence that there is a gift of eternal life that comes by your grace. With the assurance that you are the living God, the one in whom we may say, of whom we may say, This is my Lord. So let the great realities of Jesus rest upon our souls today, that we too, like Mary, may be able to say, I've been changed by this powerful love. I'm motivated by this extraordinary, miraculous resurrection. I have seen the Lord. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.